When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Fayetteville, North Carolina. In 1783, the North Carolina General Assembly approved the town's official renaming from Campbellton to Fayetteville in honor of the Marquis de Lafayette. He was a French nobleman who served as a major general in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. And in fact, I know from my time working in Congress that in the current House of Representatives chamber, only two portraits hang on either side of the speaker's desk. George Washington is to the right of the speaker and the Marquis de Lafayette is on the left. This was done to honor General Lafayette's significant help securing victory in the Revolutionary War. Out of the dozens of U.S. cities and countries named after General Lafayette, Fayetteville, North Carolina was the first, and it is said the only one, he actually visited, traveling there by horse-drawn carriage in 1835. Known throughout history for its cultural diversity and military presence, today the Fayetteville area stands as a testament to its proud past. Many structures have been painstakingly preserved to reflect this history in nine designated historic districts across the city. But in 1985, this city so rich in history experienced an event so horrific that it drew residents' attention away from their proud past toward what they feared would be a precarious future. Gary Eastburn and his wife, Catherine, who went by Katie, were married for 11 years in 1985. They had three daughters, five-year-old Kara, three-year-old Erin, and a 22-month-old toddler named Jana. Gary was a captain in the Air Force and supervised air traffic control at Pope Air Force Base. The Eastburns rented a three-bedroom single-story house on Summerhill Road in a quiet middle-class neighborhood of Fayetteville. Many neighbors were active or retired military due to its proximity to Fort Bragg, which was close to Pope Air Force Base, where Gary worked. In March of 1985, 36-year-old Gary left for Montgomery, Alabama, over 500 miles from home, for a 10-week officer training course that was required for his upcoming assignment. The Eastburn family was scheduled to move to a new post in England, and Gary was training to take a position as a liaison to the Royal Air Force. 31-year-old Katie was getting ready for the move and trying to find a new home for their family dog, an English setter named Dixie. Gary and Katie kept in touch with regular letters and phone calls. On Thursday, May 9, 1985, Gary called Katie but got no answer. But Katie called Gary religiously every Saturday at 8 a.m. and he was looking forward to hearing from her. On Saturday morning when Katie did not make her regular call, Gary became worried and that fear intensified when he called home and got no answer. 
So on Saturday, Gary called a couple friends in Fayetteville, as well as the sheriff's department, and asked them to check on Katie. Shortly after noon on Sunday, now this is three days after Gary first attempted to call Katie with no answer, and it was also Mother's Day, the Eastburn's next door neighbors grew concerned because they had not seen Katie or the girls for days. Not since Katie borrowed some milk at around 8 p.m. on Thursday night. The neighbors noticed three newspapers on the Eastburn's driveway that were untouched. They also noticed the Eastburn's car had not moved from the driveway. After knocking on the front door and not receiving any response, the neighbors went around the house, knocking on the doors and windows around the perimeter of the house. Again, no response. But the neighbors thought they heard the sound of a baby crying, so they called the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department. The deputy sheriff who responded banged on the front door, but nobody answered. So, Kath, according to an Associated Press article in the Charlotte Observer, after Gary called the sheriff's department the day prior to ask them to check on his wife, the deputy who came out left a note tucked in the door. It said, call your husband in Alabama. So when this new deputy comes out on Sunday after being called by the neighbors, they find this note perfectly placed and untouched in the door. So they know Katie has not gone in and out of that house. While walking the perimeter of the house, the deputy looked in a bedroom window and saw a crying toddler in a crib. Desperate to get to this child, he tore the screen off, opened the window, got into the room, and handed 22-month-old Jana to the next-door neighbor. The stench in the house was horrific, and it was obvious to the deputy that the child had been alone for quite some time. So he walked through the house to the master bedroom, where he discovered an unimaginable scene. The body of three-year-old Aaron Eastburn was on the floor next to the bed. Also on the floor, on the other side of the bed from Aaron, was her mother, 31-year-old Katie Eastburn. Katie was naked with her blouse draped over her left shoulder, and it was later determined both Aaron and Katie had multiple stab wounds to their chests, and their faces were partially covered with pillows. In the second bedroom, the deputy found the body of five-year-old Kara, who had suffered similar stab wounds. Kath, she was in her bed with her Star Wars blanket pulled over her head. I saw an interview later with one of the homicide detectives, and he basically said it looked like she was trying to hide. Homicide investigators Jack Watts and Robert Biddle were assigned as lead detectives and began combing for clues. A team of investigators from the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, including two chemists, also assisted in the collection of physical evidence. Detectives found no forced entry, but in the living room, they did find evidence of a struggle. Because Katie was last seen on Thursday at 8 p.m. and three days of newspapers were on her driveway, detectives believed that Katie and her girls were murdered Thursday evening or in the early morning hours of Friday. So little Jana survived in her crib for nearly three days with no food or water. That's crazy. I know. And I saw an interview from the neighbor. So the deputy hands Jana to the neighbors. They immediately run home. The woman said that she poured a glass of milk for Jana and Jana, it was like she had forgotten how to drink. She was trying to stick her face in the glass. She was so desperate to get the milk. And she also said her teeth were dark. And so I later looked that up and it turns out that can happen from dehydration. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it is a miracle that this little girl survived. 
According to an episode of 2020 on Investigation Discovery, detectives called Gary Eastburn at the airbase in Alabama. Now, Kath, this was so sad. One of his colleagues yells to Gary, hey, Gary, phone call. So Gary's excited. He thinks it's his wife, Katie, calling. And then the guy goes, he says it's a detective. His heart must have just dropped. Dropped. So he picks up the phone and the first thing out of his mouth is how many of them are dead. That's weird. He didn't ask, are they dead? I thought it was a little odd, but I don't know what I'd say in that situation. Yeah, who knows how they'd react. Yeah. Anyway, detectives would not tell Gary any details. They simply said, fly home immediately. That must have been the worst flight of his life. I can't imagine. My only thought with that when I saw it was they probably waited to tell him because they wanted to see his reaction when they told them the news. I mean, that's a very common thing that investigators want to see is somebody's reaction. So Gary was accompanied by a fellow military officer and immediately flew home to Fayetteville, where he went directly to the sheriff's station. On Tuesday, following the Thursday night murders, detectives took Gary Eastburn to his home, hoping he could help them find clues as to who committed these atrocious murders. He walked around the house with homicide detectives, and according to an Associated Press article in the Charlotte Observer, Gary was there for approximately two hours. But the Sheriff's Department would not comment on conversations, Gary's observations, or his mental state. According to Sean Dooley with ABC News, the police even turned to toddler Jana, the only survivor, to see if there were clues she could offer. They brought in a child psychologist to question Jana, but ultimately, the psychologist was not certain that Jana had seen the actual murders, although she had clearly heard something. So, Kath, I saw this video and I'm sure they were videotaping the child psychologist in case Jana did say something incriminating against somebody. They needed evidence in court to show that she was not being led. So you see the psychologist showing Jana photos of her house. And Jan is like, you know, she's just this cute two-year-old and she's just looking at him. And the psychologist says something like, you know, did something bad happen there? And you hear this little girl go, no. And then she comes across a picture of her mother and she kisses the photo. Isn't that so sad? I know. It freaking broke my heart. Then at some point, Janice says to the psychologist, hide from the burglar. He's going to get us. Clearly, she experienced the trauma. She experienced something. Yeah, exactly. And so nothing she said to the psychologist helped the investigation. And as an adult, she has no recollection whatsoever. Thank God. According to the Kansas City Times, a crowded funeral for Katie, Kara and Aaron Eastburn took place just over a week after the murders at St. Agnes Catholic Church in Shawnee Mission, Kansas. Kansas was Katie's home state and where her parents, two sisters and a brother lived, along with Gary's father. Katie and her daughters were laid to rest at Resurrection Cemetery in Lenexa, Kansas. Kath, I saw an interview with Gary and he was talking about how Katie loved Kansas and was very close to her family and didn't particularly want to go to England. And she grew up with horses and loved horses. So he says to her, hey, let's go to England. You can have a horse in England. So I guess it was sort of an enticement for her. Enticement, bribe, potato, potato. Exactly. (laughs) You do what you got to do. Absolutely. (laughs) Especially because he had no choice. Right. Because the Eastburns kept mostly to themselves and Katie appeared to have no enemies, detectives were at a loss for motive. In a Charlotte Observer article by journalist Elizabeth Leland, a neighbor was quoted as saying, they were good people, quiet people, pleasant people. 
It wasn't like she was some shady character that we could just check the background and come across something. She was a housewife, and the biggest thing that happened to her that week was that she sold a dog. Detectives Watts and Biddle pressed Gary for leads. Gary told them that Katie had recently met a man to whom she had given their dog Dixie, but Gary could not tell detectives the man's name, where he was from, or anything about him. Just that Katie said he seemed really nice. And this was confirmed by Katie's mother, who received a letter from Katie saying that she had met a nice man who would provide a good home for the dog. At the time Katie wrote her mother the letter, the man who was supposed to buy the dog was set to visit the Eastburn home to determine if Dixie would be a good fit with his current dog. Investigators went to work trying to identify this man. According to an article in The New Yorker written by Nicholas Schmidl, Katie had placed the ad in a newspaper called the Beeline Grab Bragg, which was a newspaper that catered to military families in the Fort Bragg area. Her ad asked that someone provide their dog with a good home, and she placed a nominal $10 asking price just to keep people away who were not serious. In the meantime, police also pursued other leads. As deputies were guarding the crime scene on the day the bodies were discovered, a man flagged down a deputy to say that he had information. That man was Patrick Cohn, and while detectives were still at the Eastburn residence, Patrick was interviewed by Detective Biddle. He told the detective that around 3.30 a.m. early Friday morning, he was walking down the street the Eastburns lived on, returning home to get ready for work, which was an early morning shift as a janitor. As he was passing the Eastburn residence, he told the detective he saw a big white man walking down their driveway with a plastic trash bag slung over his shoulder. Patrick estimated that he walked within three feet of the man. Patrick turned around to see the taillights of a white Chevy Chevette glow before the car pulled away. The man was described as a very large white man wearing jeans, a knit cap, and a black members-only jacket. In 1987, I'm assuming this means he thought he was an it guy. For sure. <laughs> Detective Biddle took Patrick to the sheriff's department where he worked with a sketch artist to create a composite of the man he saw. Deputies were staked out at various locations throughout the county looking for a white Chevy Chevette. Soon, however, the stakeouts were leaked to the media, so the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department took a more direct approach. Six days after the murder, they asked for the public's help in finding the man who bought the Eastburn's English setter, Dixie. Deputies said this person needed to come to the station. 27-year-old Timothy Hennis, an Army parachute rigger, was at home with his wife Angela three days after the Eastburn bodies were discovered. Both heard TV news reports that investigators were searching for the man who bought Dixie two days before the murders. Hennis, his wife Angela, and their two-and-a-half-month-old baby immediately went to the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office. Timothy Hennis was questioned for nearly seven hours by homicide detectives after he informed them that he was the man who bought the dog. His wife and baby waited in the reception area the entire time. Two things. That's crazy that he submitted to a voluntary interview for seven hours. Seven, yes. And that his wife and two and a half month old baby waited in the reception area the entire time. I would have been like, call me when you're done. Exactly. <laughs> Hennis told detectives that he called a phone number listed in the ad. He left his number with the Eastburn's babysitter, and he received a call back from the woman who was selling the dog. According to an Associated Press article published in the Herald Sun, 
Timothy Hennis told detectives that he picked the dog up on Tuesday, May 7th. He also told them that on Thursday, the night of the murders, Katie called him at 8.45 p.m. to see how the dog was doing. When detectives asked where he was earlier in that day, Hennis said he drove his wife and daughter to stay the night at his in-law's house, and then he returned home, only stopping for gas. He denied seeing Katie Eastburn at any point after Tuesday. When asked why he didn't come forward sooner, he said he did not know the last name of the family from whom he bought the dog. Although detectives later said Hennis answered many of their questions impatiently, he did stay for seven hours and voluntarily provided blood, saliva, hair samples, fingerprints, and palm prints. After the interview ended, detectives walked the family to their car and saw it was a white Chevy Chevette. Six hours later, Hennis was arrested. Kath, we find out later that during the seven hours he was there at the station, detectives wanted to go bring Patrick Cohn to the station and see if he could identify Hennis from a photo lineup, commonly known as a six pack. So that's part of the reason the interview took so long. They brought him to the station, as well as, I believe, one other potential witness, and they literally cut out pictures of tall, blonde men with mustaches, taped him to a manila folder, and asked Patrick Cohn, hey, do you identify him? He picked out Hennis. Despite Patrick being able to pick Hennis out of a photo lineup, Hennis was released after his interview because detectives did not yet have an arrest warrant for Timothy Hennis. At booking, Hennis was noted to be six foot four and 220 pounds. So Detective Watts, who was one of the lead homicide detectives on the case, said that when Hennis walked into the police station, he knew he knew him from somewhere. He knew he'd seen this guy's face before. It turned out it was from the composite sketch created by Patrick when he went down to the station to work with the sketch artist the day after the murders. And Kath, Detective Watts said that the sketch was the best he had ever seen. According to an Associated Press article published in the Durham Morning Herald, the affidavit for the arrest warrant stated that two witnesses picked Hennis out of a lineup. The affidavit also said that investigators found evidence that the killer cleaned the crime scene and washed evidence down the sink. At the time of the arrest, police searched the Hennis home looking for green plastic garbage bags with blood stains, a dark knit cap, and blood-stained clothing. It was later reported that detectives seized an oil drum after a neighbor said he saw Hennis burning something in it after the murders. Detectives also seized a black members-only jacket from a local dry cleaners. Hennis pled not guilty to three charges of first-degree murder and one charge of first-degree rape of Katie Eastburn. He was held without bail. In the previously referenced New Yorker article, it was reported that Hennis was offered a plea bargain, two counts of second-degree murder with a likely penalty of two consecutive life sentences. He reportedly told his lawyer, I'm not pleading guilty to something I didn't do. So, Kath, Hennis's father hired two respected defense attorneys. These were not public defenders. One of them was William Richardson, who went by Billy, and one was Gerald Beaver. The district attorney was William Van Story. He also went by Billy. It was the dueling Billies. <laughs> <laughs> like the Kathy Podcasters. <laughs> That's right. And to be clear, when I say he didn't have public defenders, I am not trying to imply that public defenders are not well-respected because that's not the case. 
they are actually the workhorses of the legal world. Totally. Some of these other guys are the show horses. Right. (laughs) That's very true. Jury selection began on Tuesday, May 27th, 1986, just a year after the murders. And the courtroom, of course, was packed every day. Prosecutors opened their case by telling the jury that sex was the motive and admitting that little physical evidence connected Hennis to the murders, but none of the physical evidence ruled him out. They suggested that because Hennis's wife had just had a new baby and she was away for the night, perhaps he was looking for sex. They put Hennis's former girlfriend on the stand. Now, Kath, she had come forward after Hennis was arrested. Hennis mentioned nothing to the detectives about this former girlfriend, but it turns out Hennis did not go straight home after dropping off his wife and baby at the in-laws house. What he did was he went to his former girlfriend's house. Now, he dated this gal for quite some time. They had met years earlier at Fort Bragg. And even after they broke up, Hennis would sometimes go occasionally stop by. So on the day of the murders, Hennis shows up at his ex-girlfriend's house knowing that her husband is deployed to Germany. And he just kind of like makes this unannounced surprise. Hi, I'm here. She lets him in. They chat. She then taps his wedding band and asks him how his marriage is going. He says to her, she left me. Of course he did. Yeah. A total misleading reference to the fact that she was visiting her parents. Or he was just a big fat liar who was hoping to have sex. According to prosecutors, if Hennis was looking for romance, he got no encouragement from this lady and he left. Is romance a euphemism? Because I don't think he was looking for romance. Yes, ma'am. It is. (laughs) Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Margaret Tillerson, a neighbor of the Eastburns, took the stand and testified that on the day of the murder, between 11.15 a.m. and noon, she saw Hennis parked across the street from the Eastburn residence in a small white car. She said he had his head out of the window and was looking at the Eastburns' house. She testified that when she returned 15 minutes later, he was still there. She did not know him at the time, but recognized his picture from the newspaper following his arrest. Air Force Captain Gary Eastburn also tearfully testified about having to leave his family for training in Alabama. He talked about the missed phone calls and attempts to get in touch with his wife. He also told the jury that he went through his home after the murder and discovered there were missing items. These included an envelope with money, his wife's wallet, which had an ATM card, a lockbox that contained paperwork, and the debit card's password. Also missing were towels, sheets, and clothing. Kath, one thing that I thought was a little bit amusing was in the newspapers when they were referring to the debit card, every single article referred to it as a 24-hour bank card. The 24-hour <laughs> bank card was missing. The 24-hour bank card was that. Like, it was, it was really funny. Welcome to the dawning of a new age. Exactly. Detectives testified that the use of luminol at the crime scene showed that the killer cleaned up after the murders and wiped down surfaces. They also told the jury that they tracked down two ATM transactions or two 24-hour bank card transactions right. <laughs> on Katie's debit card after her death, one on Friday night and one on Saturday morning. $150 was taken each time. The debit card was not used after Hennessy's arrest. Detectives then looked to bank records to determine whether anyone using the ATM after that could possibly identify the individual who was in line in front of them. Bank records reflected that on one of these occasions, Mrs. Lucille Cook used her bank card at the same location within four minutes after Mrs. Eastburn's card had been used there. Mrs. Cook testified that she saw an unusually tall man in his 20s with blonde hair. After leaving the ATM, this man entered a light-colored two-door automobile. Mrs. Cook said she observed him for at least a minute and testified that he looked like Hennis. The prosecution also called one of Hennis's neighbors who testified that about 9.30 a.m., two days after the murder, Hennis began burning something in a barrel in his backyard. He poured a flammable liquid into it and occasionally stirred the fire. This apparently occurred all day. Garbage services were regularly provided in the area on a weekly basis, and Hennis's neighbors had never seen him engage in such burning activities previously. When the burned debris in the barrel was examined, it included material consistent with t-shirts, towels, sheets, and bits of paper. Now, Patrick Cohn was the star witness. He talked about seeing a man on the Eastburn's driveway at about 3.30 in the morning so close to him that he could have shaken his hand. He also testified about the composite sketch he helped create. He pointed to Hennis in court and said, that is the man I saw on the Eastburn's driveway the night of the murders. Patrick said he shared his concerns about a burglary in the neighborhood with his father, other family members, and co-workers. 
According to an Associated Press article in the Charlotte Observer, Patrick's father, mother, sister, brother-in-law, and two former co-workers testified that Patrick told them before the bodies were discovered that he had seen a man he suspected of having broken into a home in his neighborhood. One of his sisters also testified that she saw a Chevette parked down the street from the Eastburn residence at 11.30 p.m. on the night of the murder. Patrick Cohn's father also testified and said that Patrick came home that morning around 4 a.m. and the two left for work together. As they drove past the Eastburn home, Patrick told his father that this was the house he thought someone had broken into and that a big white guy had come out of the house holding a bag over his shoulder. On cross-examination of Gary Eastburn, defense attorneys pointed out that Katie received a harassing phone call from a man shortly after Gary left for Alabama. This was approximately two months prior to her murder. Katie had told Gary that she was scared because a man called and said, I live around the corner and I'm going to come up and visit you shortly. Gary Eastburn testified that he never knew who made that phone call. That is a super creepy phone call. It is. I totally understand why she was afraid. According to court records, testimony revealed that each victim was stabbed multiple times and the autopsies also revealed defensive wounds to Katie's hands and forearms. In addition, Katie had ligature marks on her wrists. They also found sperm, which had been deposited within hours of Katie's death. The defense argued that their client was a happily married man with no criminal record. One of his attorneys said to the jury, is this the type of crime someone would commit without ever having committed a crime? To kill children? It did not make any sense. Defense attorneys also pointed out that Timothy Hennis sat in the sheriff's station for nearly seven hours without getting an attorney. He answered all of their questions and provided blood, hair, and saliva samples and gave fingerprints and palm prints as well without the need for a search warrant. Defense attorneys also cross-examined detectives and forensic examiners and pointed out crime scene technicians found fingerprints and one pubic hair in the house that did not belong to any Eastburn family member or Hennis. There was also a spot of blood found on a towel that did not belong to Hennis and the sperm could not be connected directly to Hennis. Literally, none of the physical evidence connected Hennis to the crime scene. And the member's only jacket had already been dry cleaned, but they could find no traces of blood on it. The defense attorneys also pointed out that a footprint found outside the Eastburn home did not match the size of Hennessy's footprint. As far as the semen goes, there had not been any case in the United States from which DNA was extracted from semen for purposes of evidence. I don't believe it happened until at least a year later. And so what they would do is they would compare protein. So it was almost impossible connecting semen to an individual back then. Defense attorneys also cross-examined Patrick Cohn on the fact that he expressed doubt as to Hennessy's identification. Apparently, Patrick was interviewed by a defense investigator and signed a written statement saying he was not sure if Hennis was the killer. He also gave two recorded statements where he expressed doubt. It was also pointed out that Patrick revised his estimate of Hennis's height and weight after Hennis was arrested. Now, Patrick testified that he did not know he was signing an affidavit, and he said the statements in the affidavit about him not knowing if this was Hennis were untrue. He testified that he believed he was signing a subpoena promising that he would appear in court. 
Now, Patrick admitted that he expressed doubts after picking Hennis out of a photo lineup on the day he was arrested, but Patrick said all of his doubts had since been resolved. And as to the witness who said she saw a man who looked like Hennis near the ATM, the defense pointed out that the identification was extremely tentative. Apparently, Kath, shortly after the murder, when detectives went to her, she told them she had not seen anyone at the bank. But nearly a year after the murder, she told them she recalled seeing someone who looked like Hennis. She picked his photograph out of a lineup, but admitted that she was not sure whether she was identifying him from the newspapers or from seeing him at the bank that morning. I'm surprised that the prosecution used her just for that reason. I agree. She didn't come forward until April of the following year saying, you know what? I did see him, it turns out. Prosecutor Billy Van Story, who was an aggressive advocate during the entire trial, apparently saved his most inflammatory and emotional language for closing argument. He said, there's your baby killer. He's the one responsible for the deaths of these kids and their mother. The man responsible for taking their lives is sitting in this courtroom, breathing the same air as you are. And hopefully it won't be for much longer. The defense attorney said he, meaning the prosecutor, is asking you to kill Timothy Hennis or take his life away for the next 80 years on the basis of a man who can't get a story straight, on the basis of a woman who initially tells police she doesn't see anything and then comes in 10 months later and says she does, on the basis of Hennis burning something in a barrel. Kath, suffice it to say, both sides were very passionate in their arguments. On Friday, July 4th, 1986, over a year after Katie, Kara, and Aaron Eastburn were murdered, it took the jury 10 hours to find Timothy Hennis guilty. Hennis bowed his head while his wife and sister cried. His parents appeared stunned. He took off his wedding ring and asked that it be given to his wife. Three days later, Timothy Hennis was sentenced to death. So, Kath, as we would expect, his attorneys filed an appeal. In fact, I was listening to an interview with one of his attorneys. And if you shut your eyes, you would have thought you were listening to Bill Clinton. He sounded exactly like Bill Clinton. And this was Billy Richardson. Anyway, he says, there's a man sitting on death row in part because of my inadequate representation. And that's a heavy burden to carry. It's probably a good thing that Bill Clinton wasn't on the national stage yet because everybody would have only been thinking about him. This guy was his voice was insanely. It was crazy how close it was. That's hysterical. So anyway, so his attorneys. And by the way, great Bill Clinton impression. Totally impressed. Thank you very much. And I'm sure this guy. Bill Clinton's voice. Oh, thank you very kindly. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure this man was not an inadequate attorney, but that was probably one of the grounds for appeal. So he was just falling on a sword here. Absolutely. It's what he had to do. Exactly. So anyway, they appeal on a bunch of grounds, but according to the appellate opinion, they only discuss one issue because if they see something that they can overturn it on, they do nothing else. And what they did is they overturned the verdict and sent it back down for a new trial because of the use of photographic images. The defense made a motion saying, hey, the prosecution has 99 photographs of dead bodies and autopsies. This is ridiculous. So the trial court says, you're right, you get to use 35. But what the prosecution does is they take those 35 photographs, 
they take two incredibly gruesome photographs and they blow them up. They basically project these two photos onto the wall across from the jury. And they were like four feet by five and a half feet or something like that. They were huge. And as the jury sees these two photos, they have to look past Timothy Hennis. It looks like they're right above his head. And then they also took each of the 35 photographs, passed them slowly around to each of the jurors, which took an hour. And then after the defense attorney stipulated as to the cause and manner of death, which meant they really didn't need to go over the gruesome ugliness of the autopsy, the prosecution still brought out all the photos with the pathologist and they went through them one by one by one. And the Court of Appeal said, look, even though these are gruesome photographs and gruesome, I mean, murder is gruesome, you, you get to admit gruesome photographs. However, the way it was done here was so biased and so inflammatory that it is foreseeable that the jury based this conviction on their emotions because the evidence was so slim and so circumstantial. And the Court of Appeals specifically went down the areas that were weak for each of the primary witnesses for the prosecution. In 1988, three years after Katie, Kara, and Aaron were murdered, Gary Eastburn took his surviving daughter, Jana, and moved to England to begin the job he was supposed to have when his family was murdered. Now, less than a year later, he had to return to the United States to testify in a second trial. So the second trial began in April of 1999, and the prosecution's theory was still all about sex. The defense's theory was that cops were pressured to get a verdict and ignored all exculpatory evidence. Even though there were new prosecutors, Timothy Hennessy's defense attorneys remained the same. Needless to say, the defense learned lessons from the first trial. Not only did they point out at this trial that none of the physical evidence implicated Hennis, but they brought out evidence someone else could have committed the murder. The defense emphasized the threatening phone call to Katie in the middle of the night from a man who knew her name and said that he was coming over. They also introduced an anonymous letter that Timothy Hennis received shortly after he was sentenced to death at the first trial. The same letter was also sent to the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department. It read, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. Now, as a result of the appeal, use of any photographs was clearly limited during the second trial and new evidence regarding Patrick Cohn was presented. According to the aforementioned New Yorker article, in court, defense counsel referred to Patrick as a thief and a liar. Between the first and second trials, Patrick committed several criminal offenses, attempting to use a stolen ATM card, being drunk in public and obstructing an officer, and driving a car with an expired registration. During the drunkenness episode, Patrick supposedly told an officer, you can't arrest me. I'm helping you guys out. You need to check with the district attorney, man. They know me and I'm their witness. I'm a witness in the Hennis trial. Those charges, like the others, were dismissed. Then, one night in February 1989, so this is just before the second trial began, it was reported that Jack Watts, one of the lead homicide detectives on the Eastburn case, stopped a vehicle that Patrick was driving. He failed a sobriety test, but instead of arresting Patrick, Detective Watts told Patrick's friend to drive him home. The friend later informed Tim Hennis's defense team that Cohn had told him, I can do anything I want. The defense then called to the stand a tall, blonde teenage boy from the Eastburn's neighborhood who looked similar to Hennis. 
This young man testified that he habitually walked along Summer Hill Road late at night and admitted doing so at around 3 a.m. on May 10, 1985, early Friday morning, when the murders could have occurred. Then, on April 10, 1989, Hennis took the stand in his own defense, something he had not done in the first trial. And basically, Kath, his attorneys were like, we have nothing to hide. Get on the stand. They were happy with his testimony because Hennis kept his composure and the jury saw him deny the murders, deny being involved with Katie or having any contact with her after he picked up Dixie, the dog, two days before the murders. On April 19, 1989, the jury found Timothy Hennis not guilty. He was still married to Angela and, for the first time in four years, got to hold his daughter. One month later, he and Angela were paid to appear on A Current Affair, which was a tabloid TV show, and Timothy Hennis basically blamed the police for being out to get someone so that they could just get the murders out of the news. And again, he reiterated that he did not kill the Eastburns. Gary Eastburn returned to England with Jana and eventually married a nurse. He enjoyed a successful career in the Air Force, then returned to the United States and settled in the state of Washington. Following his acquittal, Timothy Hennis re-enlisted in the Army and was promoted to the rank of Staff Sergeant. He saw action in Iraq during Operation Desert Storm, as well as Somalia. Hennis received several awards and accolades for his service, and in 1998, Hennis and his family, who were now joined by their six-year-old son, Andrew, moved to Fort Lewis, Washington. Eight years after the murders, in 1993, Scott Wisnant, a former editor and writer for the Morning Star in North Carolina, who had covered much of the Hennis trials, in fact, both of them very solidly, wrote a book entitled Innocent Victims, The True Story of the Eastburn Family Murders. Three years later, in 1996, it was turned into a television miniseries, and the series ended with a reminder that the real murderer was still somewhere out there walking around free. So fast forward 20 years after the murders to May of 2005. Captain Larry Trotter of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office attended a detective seminar on advanced criminal intelligence techniques, which discussed the Eastburn murders as a case study. And Kath, as I was doing research for the case, I was shocked at that coincidence. Author Scott Wisnant was a guest speaker. Through the course of the presentation, Captain Trotter learned that semen had been extracted from Katie's body. And Kath, Captain Trotter was so interested in this case and what the author had to say. Mm-hmm that he and Scott Wisnant sat down after the conference was over Mm -hmm. so they could talk about it. And when Trotter got back to the office after leaving this conference, he actually pulled the box from storage that had all of the case files and all of the evidence from the case 20 years prior and saw that the semen sample was still preserved. Trotter had the semen tested at the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation's Crime Laboratory in Raleigh. One year later, in June of 2006, the test results identified the killer. Detective Biddle, the original homicide investigator, called Gary Eastburn and told him the results. He said, I have a hit on your case. The killer is Tim Hennis. Gary Eastburn was hit with a wave of emotion and started crying. He said he never had a single doubt about Hennis's guilt. And Kath, this is such an odd thing. 
When the results were revealed to Gary, it turned out that Gary and Janet Eastburn at this point in time only lived 30 minutes from Tim Hennis in Seattle. I know. I actually read that and I saw an interview from Jana and her father called her and basically said, hey, look, I got this phone call. Tim Hennis is the guy. And by the way, he lives nearby. So Jana was freaking out. Of course. Yeah. 30 minutes is nothing. Nothing. She was freaking out because she's like, oh, my God, the man who killed my mom and two sisters who took away half my family lives within driving distance of me. What the heck? You know, so she she actually became incredibly insecure. So now what, right? Timothy Hennis was acquitted and the double jeopardy clause in the Fifth Amendment prevents the state from retrying him. And, you know, just for you history nerds, it says, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. That was a really bad accent. Wow, you do impressions (laughs) of all of our founding fathers. (laughs) A really bad accents, but yet I persist. So the state could not try Hennis again. So what happens is Captain Trotter reaches out to the district attorney. The district attorney invites prosecutors from the army and says, let's sit down and have a meeting. They do so and they agree on a plan because they know that although he's going to raise the defense of the double jeopardy clause, the United States is considered sovereign from each state. So I can have a state offense be found not guilty and be tried for a federal offense. So the U.S. Army's like, no problem, we'll help you out. So Timothy Hennis had retired from the Army in 2004, but in 2006, he gets a knock at his door and he's told he is being recalled into military duty, which, by the way, is something they can do. So he is furious and he is sent to Fort Bragg a month later. In August of 2007, a military judge ordered that Hennis be court-martialed on three counts of premeditated murder. Now, Kath, he immediately appealed, citing double jeopardy, citing the fact that there was a break in his military service, all this kind of stuff. And the Court of Appeal was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Get your butt back to the court-martial. So Hennis's court-martial at Fort Bragg began on March 17, 2010. His trial lasted three weeks. For the court-martial, Hennis had military attorneys, and the prosecution was represented by two army captains who were members of the Judge Advocate General Corps. A jury panel of 14 military officers and non-commissioned personnel was convened. During the trial, The prosecution focused on the new DNA evidence with the prior eyewitness accounts as corroboration. In response to the DNA evidence, the defense suggested that Hennis had consensual sex with Katie before her murder. Now, this was not a well-taken argument, particularly because of his prior denials under oath at the second trial. But, Kath, I also read that with the military personnel, they're separated from their families a lot. And the assertion that the separation would warrant adultery in a marriage did not go over well in court. Oh, it couldn't have. Exactly. So following three hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously found Hennis guilty on April 3rd, 2010. In the penalty phase, now 26-year-old Jana testified as to what the murders did to her and her father. She said she was deprived of half her family. After the verdict, Jana told reporters that she felt she closed a chapter. She said, I feel more at peace now for myself and my family that he is behind bars. 
Gary Eastburn, maintaining the grace and poise that he always exhibited. And Kath, I'm sure you saw the same thing. It was amazing how he went through all of this and always had that poise. Anyway, he said, my heart goes out to the Hennis family. I can certainly relate to the pain they're feeling and my heart goes out to them. And I hope none of you feel that I'm gloating over this. I'm not. I feel that justice has finally been done. One week later, the jury recommended that Timothy Hennis be sentenced to death and dishonorably discharged from the U.S. Army. He is currently incarcerated at the United States Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Thanks for listening. Next week, we're going to drop the episode that we recorded in Chattanooga. Just a couple days ago. Exactly. We had a great time. It was amazing. And thank you to Jennifer Edge with Mainline Tattoos. Totally. And all the folks at Literary Inc. for their hospitality. Everything was just fantastic. Yes, it was. And I love that city. Oh, it's beautiful. I've never been there before. Super cool. Lots of fun was had. And uh, if you don't follow us, please do at Killer Destinations Podcast. On Facebook and Instagram and on TikTok, we're at Killer Destinations Pod. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.